Welcome to Valley Church, everybody. It's great to see you guys. A lot of people weren't here last week. It's not like me making you feel bad about it. It's just I'm happy to see you guys this week. So thank you for being back. Please come back next week, too. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor here. And we're going to take the next two to three weeks to talk through why we are in this room, why, why this church exists, what we're about, and some thoughts for maybe... Um, how we kind of move forward this next season as a church. I feel fairly confident that we'll have two weeks to talk about this, this week and next. And maybe we'll have a third week, but we're having a baby like really soon at the end of this month. Yeah, woo. And uh, I might be out for a few weeks. The due date is the 25th, and the Sunday after that is the 27th, and that would be week three of this kind of vision series. So maybe this is a two-week series, maybe it's a three-week series, it's a surprise to everyone except the Lord. And that's what we're going to do. Um, we've got two weeks at least, and we're going to make them count. Um, there's this concept I learned about. I think I learned about it in premarital counseling. You might have learned about it there or anywhere else in life. It's a very universal topic. But I want to talk really quick about unknown, unspoken, and unmet expectations. Have any of you guys heard of this concept that is just a really, um, it is the silent killer in marriages. Um, These are things, unknown, unspoken, unmet, things that you didn't even know that you expected and you couldn't couldn't have even put words to them and then all of a sudden something's not happening in your life, whether it's in your marriage or your job or something, something's not happening, something feels off. Um, It's been weeks or months or years and you're like, oh my word. It's because I thought that this thing was supposed to happen. I thought it was supposed to be like this. I never knew that, but that's what I thought. And then it's not happening, and that kind of explains your frustration or um, why things have felt so terrible. Um, you wouldn't have even thought if someone asked you, like, hey, make a list of all the things you expect from your marriage or your job or whatever. You wouldn't have even thought to put it on a list because it was unknown to you until you were in the thing. This happens with church, too, I think. All of us in here have a wide variety of background when it comes to our church experience, our understanding of the scriptures, reading the Bible. So you, and I think it's a positive, you bring with you all sorts of thoughts and knowledge and wishes and dreams and expectations of what church should be like, what kinds of things that we should do, what we should be about. Some of those thoughts and hopes and expectations might actually be unknown to you. You might not be able to like put them down and write them down. You might not be able to express them yet. They're, maybe they're un, of the unknown, unspoken, and unmet variety, but deep down without, a fing- without putting a finger on it yet, you feel like this is what the church should be doing. This is what I want my church to do. Um, and then maybe it's happened to you before. Maybe it's happening to you now where you wake up and you realize this is not what I thought it would be. Um, this is a, maybe you feel a little disappointed. And it is a recipe for disappointment when we have unspoken and unmet expectations. Um, it's a recipe for disillusionment with the church and maybe even some serious like frustration with God and your, and your relationship with him. So I want to, honestly, as much for myself as for our church, clarify what the church is and um, what we're doing here, what, this, what the church is and what that means for Valley. And so that's my question tonight, not what, are, what is Valley Church gonna do? What's our mission? But if we could step way back and ask the question, what is the church? Um, and I think 
Um, this might be one of those things that makes sense in my mind, and I wrote it all down, and it might not make sense to you. Um, and if so, you're stuck. We're doing this. Um, I think making sense, to make sense of the church, to make sense of yourself as part of it, as a Jesus follower, I kind of want to just like place ourselves in the context of the story of the universe. <laughs> like all, all that is, if that doesn't sound crazy enough. And so I just want to step back and kind of um, lay down eight things that I think are true that like form reality for us, form reality for humans. So there's eight things. They're not going to be on the screen. If you want to write them down, good luck. But I'm going to go through them. And some of these are like really, really basic, and you'll be like, duh. But they all, in my mind, form some type of foundation for what the church is. Like us, what the church is makes sense to me in light of these things. And if I skip these things, this is basically what happened was I was trying to figure out what's Valley Church about? What's the church about? And in order to answer that question, I asked a bunch of other ones. And rather than me doing all that by myself in my mind, I thought, let's bring it here and you guys can enjoy it too. Eight things. Thing number one, the whole universe belongs to God. I said it was going to be basic, some of them. Everything that is or ever was or ever will be belongs to God. He is the author and the creator and sustainer of everything. Everything that we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, as well as anything and everything that we can't observe with our physical senses, like the spaces and the beings and the realities that um, uh, the Bible calls like the heavenly realms or the spiritual realm, that all belongs to the Lord. God is the master and the owner of it all. He is the true and the rightful king of the universe. It is his domain. To borrow the phrase of moms everywhere, God brought everything into this world and he could take anything out of it if he wants to. So that's the first thing, very basic principle, but we need to say it. God is the owner and the king of the universe. Sound good? Okay, thing number two. God is not his name. His name is Yahweh, which means that he is like the self-existing and ever-existing one. Existence begins with Yahweh. And the only things that exist owe their existence to the ever-existing one, Yahweh. He has revealed himself to us generally or non-specifically in all the things that exist. Theoretically, we can look at the sky and the cloud and the earth and water and sun, moon, and stars, plants, creatures, humans, all this stuff, and theoretically, we should be able to know or intuit in most cases, that um, something has caused all of this to exist. People debate that, but I think that that's true. I think we can look at the universe and think something started what we see here. So all of this, to me, generally, generally reveals a powerful creator. Philosophy calls it like an unmoved mover, the person kind of outside of all the chain of events of the way that things exist, the one who started it, but who himself was not started. Uh, we think his name is Yahweh the ever-existing one who causes every other thing to have existence. Yahweh has also specially or very specifically revealed himself to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus, who the scriptures call the image of the invisible God or the firstborn of all creation. We use the word son about Jesus, like the son of God, 
Um, but I don't think this means that he is a child to God like the way that Nora is my child. Jesus is not God's offspring, if that makes sense. Jesus is what theologians call like the eternally generated or the ever-existing image of Yahweh. He may have been born from, uh, as a baby from Mary, but he has always existed. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, before Abraham ever was, he said, I am. Those words, I am, is this like direct quote from Exodus 3 when God tells Moses what his name is, his name is Yahweh. So Jesus is very clearly identifying himself with and as God in that moment. Thing number three, the pinnacle of all the things that God made, of all the things that exist, the pinnacle is humans. Not the mountains, oceans, oak trees, sea monsters, dinosaurs, humans. The scriptures tell us that God created humans to be his physical representations here on this earth. Nothing else on earth is created to be little versions of God except humans. Other things might reveal um, God's creative genius and abilities, but humans are created to be living, breathing, walking pictures of God, of who he is and what he's like. And one of the main ways, if not the main way, that God created humans to do this, to be like him, is in humanity's job, our role. God created everything, including humans, um, and then places humans, this is in Genesis 1, he places humans in this like raw land and tells them to cultivate it. He tells them to make other humans. He tells them to exercise some kind of leadership and authority and direction over all these creatures, to tell plants and trees where they can and can't be, and to tell other animals where they should or shouldn't be. God has commissioned humans to do what he had been doing, which is creating and cultivating life, ruling over the earth as a, a type of king or queen. He's invited humans to participate in that with him. I think that's primarily what it means to be made in God's image. So thing one, God owns everything. Thing two, God is not his name. Yahweh is his name. He's shown himself to us in the scriptures and in his visible image, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thing number three, Yahweh created humans to, like him, create and cultivate life and beauty on this earth. In essence, it is our job to co, was our job to co-rule the earth with God as his agents. Thing number four, God has an enemy. Without um, getting into like the weeds and theories and specifics on how and why, it would seem that some of God's non-human, invisible to human creations, which we call them angels and demons, the Bible often calls them gods with a lowercase g. Um, some of these creatures have rebelled against Yahweh, almost as if the story of creation in Genesis 1 is happening, God's making this land suitable for humans, but there's this like spiritual battle that had already been uh, taking place. And there seems to be one chief enemy. The scriptures call him the adversary or the accuser. In Hebrew, the word is ha-satan, the Satan. Um, and this enemy either takes on the physical form of a snake or possesses a snake somehow and speaks to these humans in the garden and convinces them that the creator God, Yahweh, is actually holding back from them. God invited humans to be like him in so many ways, to rule the earth, to create life, to make their world beautiful, but God still kept for himself and himself alone the, the authority to define what is good and what is not good. Uh, 
the story in Genesis depicts this as the, uh, a tree. God tells these creatures that we are basically called humanity and life, Adam and Eve is what their names mean, tells these creatures called human and life not to eat from this tree that would cause them to desire to define for themselves what is good and not good. God tells them that if they do, they will die. But this adversary in the form of a serpent says you're not going to die, you're gonna actually become like God. You'll get the whole picture of what's good and not good. Ironically, they already were like God more than anything else in all creation. They were his exclusive image bearers, but they gave in to the temptation of that serpent. And from that moment on, God's plan to fill the earth with his image bearers, to give them the gift of life and the noble task of doing what God does, creating life and cultivating the earth into a beautiful space to live and enjoy. From that moment on, the plan was pervasively broken. I don't mean it was totally broken in that it stopped completely, but that every part of it was broken. They are kicked out of this space that they were in, the garden. There's this tree in the middle of it called the tree of life. They no longer have access to it. It's guarded by these strange creatures called cherubim. And they're guarding it so that humans in their broken state can't access the tree and live forever in that broken state. So this ever existing God, Yahweh, who gave the gift of existence to humans, gave them the duty to create other things that exist the duty to cultivate life on the earth um, now makes it so that these humans are not ever existing but have a limited existence, it ends. Additionally, humans now have this um, just pervasive brokenness that causes them to work against Yahweh's rule of the world, to exploit the earth rather than cultivate it, to take human life or exploit human life rather than um, creating and cultivating it. The whole of the, the world itself is broken. The creation is flawed now. It takes difficult labor and pain and blood and sweat to do the two main things that humans were supposed to do, to create life and to cultivate life on the earth. Humans, I think, still have the desire to exercise this authority and leadership over the world and rule like God originally intended, but now it's broken. And rather than partnering with God all the time, doing the good that he intended, humans are either knowingly or maybe unknowingly partnering with the adversary and are in rebellion against God's rule of the universe. Humans now try to kind of create their own kingdoms and their own universes to rule over them in selfishness, which is what the adversary wants. And it gets so bad that God even restarts the human project. He wipes the slate clean and starts over with Noah, but immediately after we realize that humans are still deeply and pervasively broken on the inside, bent towards rebellion. So this thing that we call sin has totally separated humans from God and broken our ability to do as God intended. You guys happy yet? Good. Thing number five, short one, but epic. God promised that one day an offspring of Eve, a human, would crush the serpent the implication is uh, the destruction of the serpent that we would be fixing, he would be fixing what was broken and destroying the one who broke it. Again, the shortest thing, but very important. Um, in case it's unclear, we have just summarized Genesis 1 through 11. I'm not gonna summarize the whole Bible, and I summarize that because it is um, just incredibly foundational for who we are. Um, 
again, trying to kind of lay some foundational truths that will help us make sense of us and our church. And we're at number six. Despite this broken human condition and the sinful decisions humans keep making, God continues over and over again to kind of select or pick out, call out a person or a group from among many others. Um, And it's often not the one you'd expect. And he picks out this person or this group and calls them out for a specific purpose. He has a job for them. He wants to give them a noble role or duty. He still, despite all that's happened and all that's been broken, he still invites humans to partner with him for his purposes in the world. And it often goes poorly. The humans mess it up, and yet God somehow still uses their failure to work something out. Um, So just a few examples. We mentioned God singles out Noah to restart the human project. And after we read that the humans from Noah's line are still just as bad, God singles out Abraham, promises that Abraham's family would be the family and the conduit through which God would restore his blessing to the world. God picks Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, um, Judah from among his brothers for a specific purpose, Levi from among his brothers for a specific purpose, Joseph amongst his brothers for a specific purpose. Um, after rescuing Jacob's descendants or the, the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, God calls his people and he tells them that they are a special treasured possession. Not because of anything special that they had done, but simply because he chose them. They will uniquely represent God to the world, even in their broken state. He calls them in Exodus a kingdom of priests, a gathering of people who are going to basically mediate between God and man. A few more rapid fire examples of options where it's like God picks someone and there could have been a better option and they mess it up in many ways, but it's still what God does. God chose Moses to rescue Israel. Uh, God chose Joshua to lead Israel to their land and there was all sorts of problems and mistakes that those people made. God chose specific judges to call Israel back to obedience to God. God allowed his people to select a king to rule over them even though he was their king. They kind of struck out with Saul and then God chose this lowly shepherd David to be their king and told him that David's dynasty would last forever and that this snake-crushing king would actually come from David's line. God chooses specific and imperfect prophets from Israel to call their people back to obedience. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jonah. Um, God chose Mary to bring Jesus into this world. God decided that our Messiah would be born in an uncool and unassuming and maybe even scandalous way and be raised in this uncool kind of backwoods random part of their country. Jesus chose 12 dudes who would not be the 12 that you would choose if you were trying to pick really cool, awesome people. He even singled out three from among them to be his inner circle. God chooses people. I uh, skipped so many, didn't go into details about all of these people and why they were chosen and how it went. Um, I'm hoping to make the point that God, from the beginning, in the garden, and then even after that plan breaks, insists on calling out humans, selecting them for a purpose to partner with him. It was supposed to be this beautiful and perfect thing in the garden, but once it was broken, he still operates this way. He carries God, carries on his purposes through humans. 
He continually does so, even when these humans keep running his idea for them into the ground and screwing it up. And somehow, despite humanity's failure, God keeps doing what he wants to do. I could probably end the message and just talk about this point here because I think it is incredibly, incredibly profound. Um, I really enjoy cooking. Um, it's maybe uh, primarily over the pandemic, but even before that, I just fell in love with cooking over the last few years. And I even like, this was a couple years ago, like rearranged our like food prep area. And so I like, I bought a bunch of like good cooking supplies, you know, cookware, knives and everything. And I organized them all, like threw everything out and I put everything back like in its very proper place. I have my knives and the crock with the spoons and spatulas and this one drawer where like I have 11 or 12 specific utensils and those are the only ones that go in there because they're the ones that I grab like almost all the time. And sometimes someone puts utensils in there that don't belong in there and I have to throw them in the other drawer. Anyways, I've got a problem. (laughs) Generally like to keep that part of the kitchen, kind of the cutting board, oven, stove area, pretty clean, organized, everything in its place. Um, I, I also like to clean as I go when I'm cooking. Does anyone else do that? Yeah, way to go. Um, like my heaven on earth is when dinner is made and the food is plated up and um, I've washed, not like thrown in the sink to soak, not put in the dishwasher, but washed everything and put it back so that the foods are on the plate and there's no like trace that I was there in the kitchen and it's done. I love it. Um, Anyways, I have a point here. (laughs) I'll find it. Oh, my daughter, Nora, has also grown to love cooking. She's about to turn seven. She makes scrambled eggs like most mornings, um, just about every morning. She always offers to make some for the whole family. Do you want eggs, mom? Do you want eggs, dad? It's really cute. And she legitimately knows how to make great scrambled eggs. She knows how to make them taste great. What she doesn't know how to do is to make them without making a bit of a mess. Not a huge mess. It's probably like what you would look at and go, yeah, that's just the, you know, normal mess that you make when you're cooking. Wouldn't bother a normal person, but I'll see like a little egg yolk like sitting on the cutting board or like some shredded cheese that like slid slid down by the oven, like the stove burner and my eye just starts to twitch and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is she doing? Starts to to freak out a little bit. I'm not okay. Um, But you know what? She's learning to cook and it's amazing. And though it bothers a part of my brain when she's like making a mess, I acknowledge like, this is a great thing. She's learning to like be independent and make food and I love it. Um, Pardon the cheesiness, pun intended. God is partnering with humans to cook. There is something that he is wanting to make and he keeps asking us to help him do it. Uh, And he's allowing us to make a mess. And that is literally what we are doing. It's what we see over and over in the scriptures. And maybe you think about your life and the things that God has had for you to do in different seasons and and you acknowledge, yeah, he keeps, you know, bringing me in, giving me stuff and ministry to do and I keep messing it up in certain ways. That is what our God does. Throughout all of the human history that we can see, especially in scripture, God gives humans noble tasks and they royally mess it up And there are consequences. God doesn't bail people out of consequences, but he somehow is still accomplishing his purpose. Um, I think that's one of the main points of the book of Genesis. It ends with this scenario where Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and Joseph winds up basically being second in command in Egypt. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. Joseph 
is able to like do some strategy to help save people from dying where there was this huge famine in the land. Joseph's brothers end up coming back down to Egypt and once their dad dies, their brothers are really nervous that Joseph's gonna wanna kill them because of what they did to him. Joseph knows this and he tells his brothers, I'm not in God's place. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I think it's one of the most amazing scriptures. It makes sense, so much sense of our suffering that we experience, that someone else can mean something for one purpose and God can have another purpose behind it. It's incredibly profound, um, and I think that's um, what we see God doing over and over again. God owns the universe. His name is Yahweh. Jesus is what he looks like. Uh, scriptures are his word. Humans are made to be with God, to co-rule with God, to do as he did, to create and cultivate life. God has an enemy, Satan, who has seduced other spiritual beings and humans to not rule with God, but for themselves. This has separated humans from being in God's presence. Humans are now fundamentally broken, bent towards ruling on their own terms and are opposed to God. God promised that a human would one day destroy Satan. Despite humanity's brokenness, God continues to partner with them, calling specific people and groups out to accomplish specific things that he wants them to do. Even when it goes bad and they end up going against God in some ways, God still partners with humans to accomplish what he wants. That's one through six. We're almost done. Thing number seven, Jesus is the rescuer and deliverer and restorer of humanity. He is the serpent crusher he fulfilled what Israel was supposed to be in that he became a sinless mediator between Yahweh and humanity. He brought blessing to the nations like Abraham's family was supposed to do. Where Adam brought death and brokenness to humanity, Jesus brings life and restoration back to humanity. Adam caused humans to be cut off from the tree of life and Jesus is the tree of life. He is the way for humans to have a restored relationship with God, to be in his presence, and to begin to undo the brokenness that causes humans to rebel against God. His sacrifice on the cross satisfies this righteous anger that God has towards sin and rebellion. Jesus' resurrection proves his victory over our adversary, and it also vindicated Jesus as a sinless, righteous Messiah. And his resurrection initiates, initiated the renewal of all things. Imagine one of those, uh, like the old school timers, like a kitchen timer with the dial and you crank it. Um, like I think Jesus' first like resurrected heartbeat, that dial turned and this timer started. And we can hear it ticking and the gears turning and we were waiting for Jesus to return again to complete the renewal of all things. The scripture calls Jesus the firstborn of creation in uh, Colossians, but also calls him the first fruit of new creation in 1 Corinthians. The first fruit is the early crop that shows up in a harvest. It shows you what's to come in that harvest. It shows that there's life in the orchard. It's not a perfect way of putting it, but it's like Jesus was a, a proof of concept about the resurrection and new creation. He is the evidence of what's to come for humanity and for the world, those who are in Christ. Okay, we're getting very close to the definition of the church. I just wanna remind you that I, I took 25 minutes or so 
to lay these foundational principles because I think they affect how we understand ourselves as the church. That God is the king, his name is Yahweh, he reveals himself in Jesus and the scripture. Humans are made to rule with God, God's enemy seduced humans to rebel against God, to rule in their own terms. Sin enters the world and breaks everything, separates us from God. God promises to fix this through an offspring of Eve. But that serpent crusher never comes in the Old Testament, but God continues to select and single out and partner with particular humans and groups of people to accomplish his purposes in the world, even when humans keep messing it up. God keeps inviting and working through them in spite of their failures. Enter Jesus in the Gospels, and he is our rescuer, deliverer, the serpent crusher who lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died, rose from the grave in victory over Satan. And in doing this, for those who repent and believe in Jesus, he restores relationship with God, invites us back into the presence of God, and again, initiated the renewal of all things. Those eight things, um, I'm sure there are more, but those eight things are absolutely fundamental to how I view the world, reality. Those are not like uh, religious facts I read in the Bible and, and like. I think those are fundamental truths that allow us to exist. Those are, that, is, that is reality to me. It's the air that I breathe, and I think maybe for you as well. The last thing, before we talk about the definition of church, uh, Jesus initiated the renewal of all things when he rose from the dead. Initiated the renewal of humanity by sending the Holy Spirit. So the, the life power that raised the first fruit from the dead now lives in us. And these things were initiated, the renewal of humanity and of the world, initiated but will not be complete until Jesus returns. This is why we still sin and why we still experience brokenness inside of ourselves and we see it around us in our world. It's because the job isn't done. Our salvation is sure and secure, but it will be completed when and only when Jesus returns. And he will fully and ultimately eradicate sin and uh, Satan and sin and all of its effects in our world. That is the job of Jesus at his second coming. This is when he comes in like tattooed and blood-soaked and a sword in his hand on a war horse, ready to destroy the enemy. So this point is also short but important. Um, Jesus's death and resurrection, sending the Holy Spirit and ascending to his throne initiates the renewal of humanity and of all creation, and he will ultimately complete that job when he returns. So to start defining, those are the eight things. Uh, I wanna read Acts chapter one, verses one through 11, and it's gonna give the language for what I think the church is. So there's probably like 12 ways that you could define the church. This is the one that I think makes sense to me. And so we're gonna read Acts one, one through 11. In my former book, author is Luke. His former book was Luke. Acts is the latter book. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, the church is the baptized and spirit-empowered witness of the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus, patiently and eagerly awaiting his return. That is as concise as I can make it. I'm gonna talk about kind of each, not necessarily each word, but each section of that. And if I can, maybe clearly or not clearly, tie them back to some of those foundational principles that we spent most of our time going over. Um, so the church, that word in Greek is ekklesia, and it, the like, root of it means to be called out. Um, and it's people called out together. It is a gathering or an assembly of people. It is a congregation. So the church is an inherently physically gathered group. It implies humans physically, locally together that are called out for a purpose because this is what God does. He calls humans out and selects them, uh, partners with them, and that is what the church is, a gathering, a congregation of people God has called out, and it's called us out to tell the truth about Jesus. So we're a gathered people. Um, the church is the baptized um, Baptism is people who identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus, people who confess their sin and their brokenness and ask that Jesus' death be their death, that Jesus' life be their life. And this um, marks the entrance into the church, water baptism does. It is 100% absolutely critical that it happened for people who profess Jesus as their Lord. Um, baptism shows that we understand the reality of the world that it belongs to God and that it has been broken by sin it shows that we understand Jesus to be the rescuer and deliverer of humanity and shows that we understand that he is the one who gives us new life and restoration and brings us back into God's presence spirit empowered the only way that a person can tell the truth about Jesus is if they have the spirit of God in them John 15:26 when the helper comes, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
This is Jesus referring to the Pentecost. Had we kept reading in the book of Acts, just a few chapters, we would have come across this story um, where Jesus' followers would receive the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the people of God now have the life of Jesus coursing through their veins, enabling us to bear witness to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Where the fall that we talked about uh, broke our ability to obey God, the Holy Spirit gives us power to successfully, not perfectly, but to successfully partner with God today. Baptized, spirit-empowered witness. Um, a witness is someone who tells the truth about what they know or what they've seen. Um, I think next week probably will be about what that means for us. Like, what does it mean to bear witness about Jesus? What are the ways that we wanna do that? How should that look for our church today? I think that's probably what we'll talk about mostly next week. But I'll just say it as a preview. We can, we can and should bear witness about Jesus with so much more than the words of the gospel, but not with less than the words of the gospel also. So we'll talk about that next week. How does Valley Church bear witness to the crucified and risen and ascended Lord Jesus? Crucified, risen, and ascended. This specifies what we are witnesses about. If you see a car accident happen and you feel like you got a good vantage point of how it went down, who may be at fault, you can pull over and be a witness telling a police officer the truth of what you saw. You can be a witness about a criminal case in the court and confirm someone's alibi or something cool. I don't know. But the church... We are those who tell the truth, who witness to the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, the, the lordship of Jesus. We bear witness to that reality, to that as truth. That Jesus, as in the language of 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins in, according, in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and raised in accordance with the scripture, that he appeared to these apostles in accordance with the scripture and ascended into heaven. We bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the serpent crusher who will defeat Satan once and for all, that he will restore what was broken in the garden and will rule over the universe once again as its rightful king. And finally, we patiently and eagerly await his return. So we live in between the two arrivals. So we're to be patient because God has called us to partner with him, to bear witness about Jesus. We have spirit-empowered work to do, and God's patience means time for people to respond to Jesus. But we also eagerly await his return because we know that we cannot fix this world. It is beyond our repair and above our pay grade. Not that we do nothing, but the responsibility falls on Jesus. We wait for his return to renew all things. We're not settling down for the long haul. I think the New Testament authors would think about us more as needing to have like go bags packed, looking for Jesus and ready for him to return. So like Paul, we say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's stuff for us to do, and we long to be with Jesus, and we long for restoration in the new heaven and the new earth. So the church is the baptized and spirit-empowered witness of the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus. And we patiently and eagerly await his return. So back to our expectations. 
maybe over the course of the last, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, you have thought about yours. Um, things that you thought or hope or expected the church should be, things that the church should do. Um, and if you haven't, I just would ask you to, to think about that. What do you feel the church is about? What should we be doing? And then I just wanna ask if you would be willing to, when you think through those and process those, to hold those up to this definition of the church, that we are baptized, spirit-empowered witnesses to Jesus. In other words, I, I think what we do, what we focus on as a church, it has to be rooted in what the church is and what Jesus says we are, who we are. And so I'm just asking for some honest reflection this week, um, whether we have next week and the week after to talk about this or just next week. Um, I would just ask you to just kind of flesh out and put some words to your thoughts and your hopes and your dreams and expectations for yourself as a Jesus follower and how you fit into this church family and what our goal is. I'd ask you to pray over what God might be stirring in your heart, to pray for our church, to pray that we could be um, beautifully and incredibly diverse in the things that God gives us to do, and also incredibly united in um, our identity as his children at this church. So I wanna close by reminding you of thing number six, that God keeps using humans despite the ways that they and we mess it up. And whether we see it or not, or recognize it or not right now, that is exactly what God's doing right now in this very moment with you as an individual and with us as a church. In our brokenness and our failure, he is using us and he wants to partner with you. And even right now as I say that and you're like, yeah, not me, right? not right now. Yes, you, yes, right now. In all the ways that we continually mess up, God still wants to use us and to partner with us. He wants to use you in this church to bear witness about Jesus to our world, to the friend of yours, to the family member, the coworker that just popped into your mind. So I'm hoping that we all might approach this concept of what the church is, what Valley Church is about with um, some humility because God uses broken humans who don't understand everything all the time. And I'm one of those, broken, lacking an understanding of what it is that we're doing here. And I'm the one standing up here telling you what we're gonna do, and I'm like, I don't know, Lord. What do you have for us? So I'm asking you to have that humility, maybe, knowing that we stand in a long legacy of imperfect humans who God has still decided to partner with to accomplish something beautiful. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this church, this congregation you've brought together of people I've known for so long and people I've known for not long at all. You have seen each and every one of us and have brought us here together for a specific purpose. Despite all the hundreds of ways that we are broken, our collective brokenness, you still have something for us to do and have called us to partner with you, have empowered us to partner with you. And so over the coming weeks, Lord, would you help unite us over what you have for us to do? 
Would you help us to listen to the Holy Spirit, guide us and prompt us to the work and the ministry that you have for us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.